Welcome to the Michael Slate Show. I'm your host, Michael Slate. Today's show is very special. In fact, the whole show today is going to be a conversation I had a little while ago with Andres Resendez. And it's a conversation that's all about the enslavement, the brutal and at times genocidal exploitation of Native peoples, Indians in North and South America. Andres Resendez has written a book called The Other Slavery, The Uncovered Story of Indian Enslavement in America. And Andres is also a professor of history at the University of California at Davis, right? And it's an outstanding book. And it's a book that many people have commented on, and that I tend to agree with this comment, that it's a book that has actually changed our understanding of history, and especially the history of North and South America, and what was done to the Native peoples. You know, when I think about what he says in the book, and in this interview, I'm reminded of a powerful quotation from Karl Marx. The discovery of gold and silver in America... The extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in mines of the Aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins, signalized the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. That can't be emphasized too much. I want people to really think about that as you're listening to this interview. Now, this is an essential part of the history of the development of capitalism, and it's a history that has been unknown or relegated to a few scattered scholarly papers that were accessible to only a few people. So now we're going to bring you Andres Resendez talking about his book that broke open all of that, that ended the situation that only a few people can know about this. So let's jump right into the interview I did with Andres Resendez. A little while ago, I uh, came across a book that I was just drawn to immediately, The book is The Other Slavery, The Uncovered Story of Indian Enslavement in America, and it's by a man named Andres Resendez. And it's a landmark history, the sweeping story of the enslavement of tens of thousands of Indians across America from the time of the conquistadors up to the early 20th century. Since the time of Columbus, Indian slavery was illegal in much of the American continent. Yet, as Andres Resendez illuminates in his myth-shattering book, The Other Slavery, it was practiced for centuries as an open secret. There was no abolitionist movement to protect the tens of thousands of natives who were kidnapped and enslaved by the conquistadors, then forced to descend into the mouth of hell of 18th century silver mines, or later made to serve as domestics for Mormon settlers and rich Anglos. Resendez builds the incisive case that it was mass slavery more than epidemics that decimated Indian populations across North America. New evidence including testimonies of courageous priests, rapacious merchants, Indian captives, and Anglo colonists, sheds light, too, on Indian enslavement of other Indians, as what started as a European business passed into the hands of indigenous operators and spread like wildfire across the vast tracts of the American Southwest. The other slavery reveals nothing less than a key missing piece of American history. For over two centuries, we have fought over, abolished, and tried to come to grips with African-American slavery. It is time for the West to confront an entirely separate, equally devastating enslavement that we have long failed truly to see. All right. And having said all that, I'm here talking today with the author of The Other Slavery, The Uncovered Story of Indian Enslavement in America, Andres Resendez. And Andres is a professor of history at the University of California, Davis. Andres, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Sure. I'm going to you know, do away with all you know, little, little sort of back and forth because there's so much I have to ask you, man. <laughs> I've read your book, and I was just glued to it for days and days. It's really an amazing piece. So thank you very much for the piece just to start, man. It was like really something that people have to read. Now, when you talk about it, you entitled it The Other Slavery. Explain to people exactly what you're talking about there. Right. Well, um, I use the term the other slavery in two different ways. 
One is, of course, that uh, is a system of bondage that targeted Native Americans as opposed to African Americans. But also, um, it is another slavery in the sense that it was not a single codified institution, but rather a set of practices that evolved over time and uh, create a continuity between these early forms of enslavement of Native Americans in the 16th century all the way to the present forms of, uh, of modern trafficking, uh, human trafficking. One of the things that you mentioned early on in your book is you explained that actually slavery existed before, you know, and we'll talk about Columbus in a minute, but, you know, before Columbus came to the, you know, this side of the world and all this, slavery existed in various forms, but it was never commodified. And that that was a big, big leap in terms of what we're talking about now in terms of this, the other slavery was the commodification of slavery itself. That's exactly right. Again, I don't want to, uh, to give the impression that uh, Europeans brought slavery to the new world. The enslavement or the, the holding of people in bondage is a uh, universal phenomenon, and the New World was no exception to that. However, um, the way it was practiced in this continent prior to Columbus was in very uh, culturally specific contexts and for very specific purposes. So Mayas and Aztecs took captives for sacrificial purposes. The Iroquois peoples uh, waged what they called mourning wars uh, on neighboring groups in order to avenge and replace deceased relatives. Or um, in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, um, captives were part of marriage arrangements between elites, indigenous elites. So all of these forms of captivity took place in very specific contexts, and those things changed, of course, once the Europeans were on the scene. And as you note, these practices became commodified and expanded in unexpected ways. Well, when you're talking about the um, other forms, the earlier forms of this in terms of, in, in terms of slavery, there was an actual, mm, what would you call it? There was an actual production system prior to this, you know, hundreds and whatever years, hundreds of thousand years earlier, there was actually a system or, of organized society that was based on slavery. And that was different than what actually happened here in the, uh, when you're talking about what happened with Columbus on up through the Americas and whatnot. I mean, because remember, you know, there was the slave societies like in, in ancient Rome and various places like that where, you know, a big, a whole portion of the way they actually lived and the way they produced the things they needed to stay alive and, and, and flourish, but it was based on the enslavement of whole people. So is, is there similarity between those two or not? Well, yes, there were, um, of course, as I said, uh, as I mentioned, uh, forms of bondage and enslavement are um, a, a feature of the human race uh, ever since we have memory. Uh, of our species. But the ways uh, those forms have occurred have changed over time. They, uh, now, it's interesting because for a, f a few years ago, uh, scholars made the argument that the forms of enslavement that existed in Europe before and during the uh, age of exploration were uh, mark markedly different to the ones that existed uh, in the New World. And they were, uh, they were different, as we are uh, mentioning, but they were close enough that Europeans, once they got to the New World, they were able to essentially reinterpret and fold the practices that they encountered in, uh, in this continent into the understandings and the practices that they themselves carried from Europe. Mm -hmm. 
Well, let's jump into one of the uh, the first people you deal with in terms of pushing all this forward, if you can talk about it being pushed forward, um, establishing all this, Columbus. You know, I never get tired of finding out dirt about Columbus, so let's, let's get into this, man. Sure. Well, um, it was a bit of a surprise to me as well. I, uh, I never uh, had seriously studied Columbus's motivations and, uh, and discovered that he was quite the businessman. He is normally portrayed as a, as, a, as a visionary explorer, and less emphasis is placed on his businesses and dealing and wheeling. And basically, his whole um, idea to, to reach the, the Orient by sailing west was a money-making uh, operation, and he peddled his scheme to various European courts. And uh, some of these negotiations fell through because he insisted on terms, on financial terms that uh, that these various uh, monarchies could not meet. So, so he was from the from the get-go a very very mindful of the financial arrangements uh, that he established. And the new world uh, turned out a difficult um, undertaking because. It turned out that it was not the Far East that he was looking for. It turned out that there was no silk, uh, no, um, no precious spices, and, uh, but still he believed that he could uh, make some money in the new continent. And uh, one of the obvious resources that he did find were, were, was plentiful uh, people. And uh, before coming to the New World, he had actually visited the uh, Portuguese, the principal Portuguese slaving port in sub-Saharan Africa on the coast of Ghana. So he had seen how that was done, and that, that people could be turned into a profitable commodity. And, uh, and as I said, I was not expecting, uh, but I did find he, how his thinking evolved, and he very, very quickly, after arriving to the New World and finding that that his dreams of wealth would would be a little slower, and the cost of mounting additional expeditions was increasing. He immediately proposed the wholesale exportation of Native Americans to the slave markets of Europe, of the Mediterranean, in order to pay for these additional resources that he needed, uh, you know, provisions uh, and other resources that he needed in the New World. Mm-hmm. Let me remind listeners that you're tuned into the Michael Slate Show. And today we're talking with Andres Resendez, who's a uh, he's the author of The Other Slavery, a really fascinating book that I'm really, really, really urging people to go out and get, read it, study it, talk about it. And he's a professor of history at UC Davis. Uh, now, Andres, let's jump in this a little bit more because actually there was that point I think you make in the book too, where actually what you're just saying, Columbus, you know, went there, you know, and and the involvement of gold and and, and trying to find gold and all this and. and there was a devastation that was unleashed on the, on the Caribbean, on the people of the Caribbean. I mean, it was really pillaged. But then also the big thing that he actually, in terms of what he did, was this enslaving the entire populations and commodifying people and exporting them as slaves, which actually did turn people into commodities, which laid the basis for a lot of what developed in the so-called New World at that time, right? Right. What's really interesting to me is that... Uh Columbus clearly, and he says this repeatedly and in letters, etc., uh, wanted to, to export uh, Indians and turn that into a, into a business. Uh, however, um, the uh, Catholic monarchs, Isabel and Ferdinand, 
his sponsors initially uh, agreed with this, but then very quickly turned against this idea. They became cautious about the idea of of accepting Native Americans as enslavable as an enslavable people. Now, uh, slavery was uh, by then a very tried and true institution throughout the Mediterranean. There were Africans being sold in slave markets. There were Eastern Europeans being sold in slave markets, people from the Levant, people from, uh, from East Asia. Uh, I'm sorry, from, from near Asia. But um, the uh, standard that all of these people, these, uh, people needed to meet in order to be regarded as enslavable uh, had to be that there were enemies of the Spanish monarchy, and that they had to be enemies of Christianity. And uh, none of these standards were obviously met in the case of Native Americans. You could obviously make the argument that it was exactly the reverse. Europeans were the ones waging war on the New World, and the Native Americans were, from the very beginning, portrayed not uh, as pagans rather than than Muslims, for example, who were seen as far more threatening by Europeans. So, um, so it was a complicated uh, decision to make, and very early on, Columbus had to wrestle with the opposition of his royal uh, sponsors to his ideas of exporting all of these Indians. So, so that is a very different, uh, and that is a fundamental distinction between African slavery and Native American or Indian slavery in that uh, early on, Indian slavery became illegal uh, at first, uh, with some exceptions, and by the middle of the 16th century, it became illegal under all circumstances. And yet it continued to flourish because that was the only way to, uh, to continue the businesses that, uh, that the European colonists had in the New World. There was no other pool of labor that they could resort to, and they had grown accustomed to using Indians as slaves during the, the first half a century of colonization. So, so the practices continued, but they became clandestine. Uh, if anything, it became a, a more insidious story uh, of trying to uh, retain mastery over these Native Americans at the same time that, uh, that they tried to get around the law. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that really kind of was interesting to me, too, is that even as you're saying this, you also say in the book that Spain was to Indian slavery what Portugal and England were to African slavery. And it was different ways it fell out, but it was really important that in terms of it wasn't just that, you know, it was, wasn't just that the, the monarchs in, in Spain just sort of suddenly said, OK, we're not going to do this anymore. And then bam, bam, bam. But there was actually way people. They had workarounds in relation to that, as you're saying. Even the, the king and queen and all that, as much as they made statements against and actually took moves against certain forms of slavery, that they also, they also found a way, Spain found a way, Spain itself, and whether it was the business people or whoever, they found a way to get around this stuff and actually pillage the world, basically, on that basis. That's right. Yeah, that's, and that's one of the reasons why we are so late in realizing and discovering the scope of these other slavery. It's because it poses as legitimate work. And so uh, colonists, Spanish colonists on the ground use all kinds of subterfuges and alternative terms and euphemisms to refer to the kinds of systems of bondage that they used in order to avoid referring to that uh, or giving the impression that that was slavery. So they used uh, all kinds of 
I go into all the different forms that this took uh, from encomiendas, which was a, a, a way in which groups of Indians were entrusted to uh, Spanish overlords, to uh, some sort of corvée system, to ultimately uh, the use of uh, indebtedness as a, as a way to, um, to force uh, Indians to work. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I found very interesting in the book, too, is that you actually, you also talk about the ways that, that even though, you know, the, again, that, that Spain had this official stand about we're not going to, and I, I don't know if that was forever, but it seemed, it seemed like after that one, I can't remember the name of the royalty that actually, that said it was, uh, slavery was not going to be accepted, but there was all kinds of ways that they, they had workarounds around that, which you're talking to. And I thought actually it was very interesting because what you end up having is you have, a situation where, and this was this, I had never thought about this and knew about this, but the situation where you had the, the monarchy in Spain, you had the, the rulers in Spain saying, no, we're not going to have slavery. It's not going to happen. They would speak out against it. They would issue laws and edicts against it. And then you had the people in different parts of South America, uh, you know, Central America, you had, and, and the Caribbean, you had all these people writing back and saying, well, that's nice, but really, we can't do anything about it. We're going to do it. You know, so I forget what the phrase was they used. It was something like, uh, I agree, but uh, can't obey. Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, that's exactly right. The, the name of the law is the new law of uh, 1542, and that was supposed to be a completely new compact. I mean, that, that was part of the, was a reaction to the complete devastation of the indigenous population in the Caribbean. And in the wake of that, sobering and terrible uh, experience, a group of royal activists decided to do something about it, and they promulgated this law that would, uh, would start from scratch and establish a new relationship with the Native Americans. However, very early on, as you, as you note, uh, colonists found a way to get around the law, call it by different names, and, and in this way, uh, the point that I make in the, in the book is that by doing this, these institutions became far more difficult to, to track down, to realize the scope of it. Um, and it, uh, it, so in a way, it mutated into a, into a malignant cancer that remained throughout the colonial uh, era and went beyond that, went into the Mexican period and the American period. And I don't want to give the impression to the, to the listeners that this was only a failing of Spain, which is very easy to do. It happened... Over and over, the, the Mexican government, the independent Mexican government, also granted citizenship to all indigenous peoples who lived uh, within, the, within the, the national territory. And that also didn't, didn't work. That, that didn't stop owners from exploiting Indians uh, and holding them in bondage. And the same thing goes for the United States. In the, uh, in the wake of the Civil War, and the 13th Amendment to the Constitution that liberated all the Indians, uh, many southern states resorted to what are known as black codes, which essentially criminalized all kinds of activities like vagrancy and making obscene gestures, et cetera, et cetera, and in a way established a regime that was remarkably similar to the kinds of things that, uh, that occurred in Spain in the, in the aftermath of the new laws. So in some ways... The 13th Amendment, uh, this may seem crazy to some of your listeners, but it is true in terms of the, uh, in terms of the, uh, uh, of, of the history of labor in our continent. 
it was uh, another episode in which a a grand prohibition of slavery resulted in adjustments in reality that tried to dismantle and get around the prohibition while retaining mastery over over those former slaves. Well, you know, one of the things that you point out in the book, too, is that there's a certain compulsion that they faced. While they could have this these laws and all this other stuff, in terms of, and, in, and especially in terms of, you know, a society where you're beginning to get the development of capitalism and all this other stuff, you know, even as you have a monarchy, you have a feudal, feudal type system there, you have at the same time this you know, profits were really a, a major, major force here. And when you look at Mexico and the relationship between the gold and silver that was in Mexico and was vital to the, <laughs> to the coffers of, the, of Spain, that actually had a lot to do with why people actually could get around all these laws outlawing slavery and saying, and saying that actually, you know, look, we have gold and silver here. And so therefore, yes, we agree, but we, we, won't, we can't obey because, hey, Get real. We got the gold and silver here, and we got to get it out. You know, and that was actually a lot of the empire actually relied on the on the production and distribution of that gold and silver, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's easy to forget that. I mean, I'm, in in the book, I make an interesting comparison, which is we the one rush that we know about, metal induced rush that we know about, is the California Gold Rush. Three hundred thousand people decamped in the aftermath of the discovery of these nuggets of gold in a ditch in Coloma, California. But uh, really, that was, uh, by any measure, that was a small metal-induced rush compared to the silver uh, rush that went on in Mexico from the 16th century all the way through the through the early 19th century. Whereas the gold rush lasted about 20 years. This we're talking about two and a half centuries. We're talking about a much larger um, geography. And we are talking about a, whereas in California is gold, which is generally found in, you need to dig superficially. Uh, silver, you have to deep these, uh, these incredible shafts, including some of the deepest, in, in the case of Mexico, some of the deepest uh, mining shafts in the world when they were completed in the 18th uh, century. And because explosives were introduced only very late, these digging had to do essentially by hand, and somebody had to do it. Um, so the mining industry in Mexico is a very good place in which to see these other slavery at work. It is, uh, some of it was done by African slaves, so throughout this period, African slavery was perfectly legal uh, in Mexico and the United States, of course, and there are scores of African uh, slaves working in these mines, but, but far cheaper, far more abundant were natives who were immediately pulled into the system. And suffice it to say that uh, in just sheer volume, about 12 times as much uh, silver was uh, extracted from the earth as the, the entire volume of gold taken out of California in the 19th century. So that gives you that should give you a sense of the uh, both the scale of this business and the tremendous need for labor to dig these holes, to take these uh, ore out, to crush it into a very uh, very fine powder, to mix it with very uh, dangerous compounds like mercury, and finally to to uh, extract the the silver. You know, Andres, there's something I, I have to ask you here because it's something that's really been bugging me. And you speak to this in the book, and that is that, you know, that Indian slavery, the enslavement of Indian people was its own system, that it wasn't something in lieu of 
African slavery, like we're going to do, do this until uh, you know the Africans are brought into the New World or something. It was actually its own system, but still there's very little known about that. Why is that, and, and what are the consequences of this? Yes, I mean, that's a very good question. And there's no question about it. This, this is, I make the point at the very beginning that today, if you conduct an Amazon search, there are about 16,000 books devoted to African slavery, and there are just a, a couple of dozen monographs set in very specific, very, uh, specific places devoted to, uh, to Indian slavery. So, so the disparity of our knowledge of these two systems uh, is astonishing. And part of the reason harks back to what we were talking about earlier, which is that Indian slavery was made illegal from early on, and therefore it officially did not exist. So it became a very complicated tangle of practices that, uh, that could easily be construed as very different. Meaning, so for example, in the literature on Mexico, for example, there are works devoted to, I was talking about the encomienda system, the entrustment of Indians to Spanish overlords. There are books about the repartimiento system, another system. There are books about debt peonage. Uh, but all of these are in isolation. And uh, it, it, we really need to take a step back and look at the reasons for these very complicated system of labor coercion and, why, and, and to try to understand how they all actually hang together because of these initial prohibition, prohibition of, uh, or banning of Native American uh, slavery. Mm-hmm. Let's, uh, well, let me, let me say this first. You're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and we're talking today with Andres Resendez. And Andres is a professor of history at UC Davis, and he's also the author of a really important new book. And the book is called The Other Slavery, The Uncovered Story of Indian Enslavement in America. And folks, I'm telling you, you have to pick this up. It'll just blow your mind. All right. So uh, now we'll jump back in. Andres, tell me this. There's, as you were just talking about this, there, and you're, you're talking about something I wanted to ask you about in particular, but I think you're, you're covering it is in terms of this Indian slavery was its own system. And it wasn't something that was like, not, it wasn't done in lieu of like, we'll, we'll just wait until we get the Africans here. But it was because, you know, it, it actually was built around the Indian people. Let's talk about what the impact of this was on Native populations. Sure. Well, I, um, I was very intrigued by these from the very beginning uh, because the uh, dominant interpretation that we have today, uh, of course, about the depopulation of the Caribbean, which is where the book and the story begins in the Caribbean, is that, of course, uh, many of these islands became depopulated largely because of virgin soil epidemics, bouts of deadly uh, epidemics, uh, including smallpox, uh, malaria, etc. But interestingly, these very elegant explanation is not uh, is not something that you find support for in the actual sources. If you look at the 16th century sources, there are some mentions of epidemics, but the overwhelming majority of the writers who are addressing this problem of the diminishing numbers of Indians talk about uh, famines, they talk about war, they talk about uh, overwork and exploitation, unbridled uh, um, Spanish um, exploitation, etc. So, uh, so the, the sources seem to be at odd with this explanation that we teach even in, the, in, in all the schools. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, of course, 
and furthermore, I was very intrigued by the fact that if you look at the island of Hispaniola, which is the first home of the Europeans in the New World, it's the island shared by Haiti and the Dominican Republic today, there are virtually no mentions of epidemics until a quarter of a century after the arrival of Columbus. So for 25 years, you know, there, there was no mention of mass death of Indians due to uh, introduced illnesses. And yet, if you look at the censuses, uh, so very early on in that island, the Europeans who uh, settled that island essentially distributed the Indians amongst themselves. And so we have pretty accurate counts very early on and before these mass epidemic. Um, so, so you can see that that population is, uh, is dwindling dramatically for, by as much as 95% from the time of contact. Now, I cannot, or people, uh, scholars cannot rule out entirely the possibility of unreported earlier epidemics. But as far as we can tell from the sources, there are no reports of mass epidemic until a quarter of a century after Europeans first arrived in this island. And so the sources really talk more about uh, exploitation, ruthlessness, warfare, etc. And furthermore, um, it is very clear that there is a synergistic relationship between epidemics and, uh, and slavery. So, um, so the uh, slaving, slaving uh, raids actually spread germs and cause death, and death spurs additional raids because you need to replace the dead, the dead slaves, the dead, the dead Indians. So, uh, so clearly we're talking about a very terrible, vicious circle here that existed in the Caribbean, and not only in the Caribbean, but in many other parts of the New World. Mm-hmm. So, I am, so, so I make the point in the book that I am very skeptical of biological-only explanations about the decimation of indigenous populations. If we had to, I actually venture the, it, it is virtually impossible to, to determine to what extent Indians died because of man-made causes and to what extent it was uh, epidemics. But if I had to guess, given the uh, sources that we have uh, at our disposal in the case of the Caribbean, I would say that probably more Indians died because of exploitation, hunger, warfare, etc., than because of biological reasons. All right, that was part one of my conversation with Andres Resendez, professor of history at the University of California at Davis and author of The Other Slavery, The Uncovered Story of Indian Enslavement in America. We're going to take a quick musical break and be right back with a conclusion, so stay tuned. Once upon a dusty reservation Somewhere in the land of Sitting Bull Johnny Lobo played with fire And dreamed of open spaces Locked inside a heaven gone to hell All the dreams were gone but not forgotten Murdered like the holy buffalo Johnny Lobo knew the rules And grew into a warrior Fighting for his people and his soul 
All right, welcome back. That was Chris Christopherson with his song, Johnny Lobo. Now, that song was written about John Trudell, a fierce fighter against the oppression of Indian people and against the U.S. government and all of these uh, fiendish capitalist rulers around the world. All right, he was a man who stood up against all of that and paid a heavy price for it. Now we're going to return to the second and final part of my conversation with Andres Resendez. Let me ask you this. You know, when we're talking about the relationship between both, and I keep going, thinking about this in my head, the relationship between, you know, everything that you're saying, and especially in terms of, we know a lot about African slavery, about the enslavement of African people in the, uh, in the U.S. And I wanted to know, what's the, what is the relationship between, because you had the U.S. on the one hand is developing out there, and it's like actually on the, you know, the east part of the continent and all this other stuff, and it's spreading through, you know, towards the west. And, and you have a certain system there that actually in a huge part of that country you have actually the enslavement of African people as the key way of, of, of production in terms of the South and whatnot and cotton and everything else. And yet, at the same time, you have in a whole other part of the world, and, and also in part of what would later become part of the U.S., you have this, in fact, this enslavement of indigenous people. And the, diff- the differences, the similarities and the differences, but what's the rela- what was the relationship between those two? I mean, I kept thinking, even as I'm reading your book, I kept thinking, was there ever a time when some of the indigenous people actually managed to hook up with some of the slaves? Did they learn anything about slave rebellions? Did they have, you know, what, was there any kind of concrete relationship between them? And then what was the overall relationship in terms of these two different forms of slavery that were actually both forms of slavery and they existed within, you know... <laughs> Spitting side by spitting side. distance, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. You know, that's a very good question. Um, the reality is that the two um, slaveries coexisted in the very same workplaces, amazingly enough. So, for example, I've looked at uh, mines, silver mines that we were talking about in northern Mexico, where in that, in that same shaft you would have African slaves, Indian slaves, free Indians, and free mestizos working side by side in the same, the very same mine. So, so, so the two, the two systems uh, worked, worked together. And furthermore, and this came to me as a surprise, uh, in northern Mexico at the time, and this is, we're talking about the 17th century, an African slave was extremely expensive. To give you a sense, it was worth anywhere between 600 and 900 pesos because it had to be imported from halfway around the world. An Indian slave was worth only about 120 pesos. So if you were an entrepreneur trying to unearth these riches from the ground, and if you were working on a shoestring budget, chances are you would gravitate toward uh, getting Indian slaves rather than African slaves. And if you had both, Chances are that you would protect your investment in African slaves by putting the African slaves to work on above-ground uh, operations that were far, um, far safer, and to, um, to use the cheaper Indian slaves in underground operations that in case of cave-ins or, uh, or death uh, because of silicosis, which was very common, uh, etc., you would be losing a, a lot less of your capital. So the two systems actually jive together in very specific enterprises like silver mining. That's one point. The other point that I, w- that I would like to make is that it is easy to overdraw the contrast between the eastern seaboard of the United States and the West. 
So, uh, you know, one uh, with African slavery and the other with Indi- working on the basis of Indian slavery. In fact, there was an earlier period in the eastern, eastern seaboard in which Indian slavery was quite prevalent, as many scholars have, uh, have noted. So, for example, um, the Carolinas and Florida uh, were places where in the 17th, in the 17th century, there, many of the businesses operated on the basis of Indian slave labor. It was just that uh, in the in the course of the you know during during the 18th century and especially in the 19th century, the uh, transatlantic slave trade developed became it became far more affordable to have African slaves in the eastern seaboard. And uh, essentially, African slaves had some uh, advantages over Indian slaves. Indian slavery was always risky because they were enslaved and were relatively close to their families and friends and tribes. And so you, if you were a rancher or a miner out there, you opened yourself to reprisals by these groups. Uh, that, that was not a problem in case of African slaves. So there were some advantages to, African, to having African slaves as opposed to uh, Indian slaves. And so they made a concerted effort to switch into um, African slavery to the point where, by the uh, 19th century, some of the um, the colonists and the citizens of the United States had forgotten, had lost conscience of this earlier phase of Afri- of Indian slavery in the eastern seaboard. And, of course, uh, Indian slavery persisted much longer all the way through the 18th and 19th century, right into the early 20th century. In, in parts of the West and many parts of Mexico as well, and other parts of Latin America, of course. You're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and we're talking today with Andres Resendez, who's a professor of history at UC Davis, and he's the author of The Other Slavery, The Uncovered Story of Indian Enslavement in America. Now, I have a couple of questions. Hopefully, you can keep going on with this, because I have about four or five more questions, if you're all right with that. Sure. Okay, good. I wanted to talk about some of the things that come up in the book that actually kind of puzzled me. And one was that there's some of the unique features of the enslavement of Indian people did seem to be that women and children played a much bigger role than you normally would expect or you normally hear about or learn about in relation to the enslavement of African peoples. So that's one thing I wanted to ask you about was the the, sort of these unique features of native enslavement and starting with this, the, the enslavement of women and children playing such a big role. Sure. Yes, uh, that is totally true. Um, Overall, if you look at the entire transatlantic system, about two-thirds of African slaves were adult males, close to two-thirds. And uh, that is in strike contrast to to Indian slavery, in which the majority were women and children, as you you point out. The reason for that is that uh, many of these Indian slaves were and and there are of course there are some differences so uh, but but many of these indian slaves were taken into domestic situations and owners regarded women as more uh, more pliable and docile than than men they could also be of course sexually exploited um so in that sense uh, these uh, indian slavery is a forerunner of the f- modern forms of uh, of sex slavery and uh, and the same thing goes for children. Uh, children were were far more adaptable than adults. They could learn languages more easily, and in the fullness of time, they could even uh, identify with the with their captors. Uh, so they had distinct advantages over grown-ups. 
And these advantages were actually reflected in the in the marketplace. So I have found that in throughout the continent and from the 16th century all the way to 19th century, there was a price premium for women, whether in New Mexico or the Caribbean or Chile, women were worth more, adult women were worth more than adult males in the marketplace of Indian, uh, of, of, of Indian slaves. Sometimes uh, the price differential was enormous, 50% or up to 60% more. And, um, and following women, adult women, were uh, girls and then boys. And then way below that were adult males. And, and again, uh, a number of factors uh, that I just laid out uh, had to do with these price differentials. So, uh, so it's, a, it's a very interesting feature of Indian slavery. Yeah. One other, one other question I wanted to ask you in relation to all this is native complicity in the slavery of the Indian people themselves. The fact that you had, you know, like Comanches and is it Utes? Is that how you, you said it? Utes, yeah. Yeah. So you had, the, you had this uh, Comanches and Utes who actually were slave hunters and slave gatherers among, their, among the Indian people. That's right. Yeah, I, it was, a, it was an, an interesting, I, again, another interesting feature of uh, Indian slavery. It actually was a, uh, an interesting transformation. So initially, because of the tremendous military superiority of the uh, European colonists, especially in the form of firearms and horses, they were able to basically um, raid at will uh, neighboring groups. But as some native groups acquired firearms and horses themselves, uh, some of them turned themselves into, into essentially procurers uh, of slaves for both other Indian groups and for European colonists. And you mentioned two of the of the examples, Comanches and Utes, but there are others um, throughout the Americas, and that is a fascinating story. And that took, and that uh, that is a, a story that unfolded through the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. So Comanches, for example, which is a, the most uh, fantastic case of this, they essentially uh, uh, became. Um, so powerful that they started raiding deep into Mexico. They took not only Indian, but also uh, mestizo slaves and sold them in the United States or traded them in the United States uh, well into the, 19, into, the, into the 19th century. So, so yeah, uh, and, and I should just, to finish answering this question, I should say that, of course, uh, we are acutely aware of this because this Slavery is happening in the New World, but uh, but this is something that also happens with African slavery, as as some Africans were complicit in the transatlantic slavery system uh, in Africa. So uh, so again, this is this is not unique to uh, to Indian slavery, but to all forms of uh, enslavement. Mm-hmm. Now another question related, and actually this is a question I've been waiting to get into through the entire interview, which is you know you hear oftentimes, and and actually among in terms of slavery and in terms of the enslavement of African people here in the U.S., you have this whole, you know, the, the, a lot of the slave rebellions are never spoken about. And really, it's just been in recent times that people have sort of dug up some of the, like, astounding history, you know, over the last 50, 70 years that people have begun to dig up this astounding history of the resistance that came from amongst the, the, the African slaves themselves. And in your book, you 
touch on something, you actually go deeply into something that I thought was really fascinating and really important for people to understand. And that was the greatest insurrection against the greatest, the title of the chapter is the greatest insurrection against the other slavery. Let's talk about that because that was extremely important in the face of everything you run down in the book about the horrific things that were being done to the, um, to the indigenous people. Then you have this greatest uprising. Let's talk about that. Sure. Yeah, I, I should say that uh, I, uh, it would be wrong to just uh, portray Native Americans as, as pure victims. They were certainly victimized by the system that I'm describing, but they did a number of things to extricate themselves and to free themselves that range from using the Spanish legal system very effectively to claim their freedom to staging a massive rebellion, as the case that you're referring to. And I'm referring to the, the so-called Pueblo Revolt of 1680. Uh, this was a, an, an incredible uh, rebellion in which various independent pueblos uh, of New Mexico agreed to raise to rise up in, on the same day and essentially kill or um, or dislodge the Spanish presence uh, in the entire territory. And they succeeded in doing so. They essentially kicked out the Spanish for a period of, a period of 12 years from the entire territory. And um, scholars have debated the reasons for this, but uh, I tried to show that, uh, that the enslavement that went on, New Mexico was one of the hotspots of Indian slavery during the 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Um, I tried to show that, uh, that, uh, that essentially one major motivation for these massive rebellion was the attempt to liberate themselves from the clutches of Indian slavery. Mm -hmm. You're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and we're talking today with Andres Resendez, who's a professor of history at UC Davis, and he's the author of The Other Slavery, The Uncovered Story of Indian Enslavement in America. You know, and moving on to, the, to another aspect of this, which is... <laughs> California slavery, which, you know, a lot of people don't really understand or recognize. They think, okay, well, California, you know, it was it was sort of separated off from the rest of the country. And it was, you know, there was a lot of Mexico that was in, you know, California was part of Mexico. And but there was actually there was a, a pretty strong ensla enslavement of Indian people in California. And it was pretty brutal. Let's talk about that some. Sure. Um, yes. Again, um, California was... Um was a terrible example in that labor demand, uh, well, well, first of all, the California system um, the, or the, the California enslavement of peoples existed during the Spanish and Mexican periods. Uh, sometimes it was in spite of the best intentions of officials. So, for example, the... Uh, Mexican officials dismantled the, the California mission system, and uh, the uh, law essentially mandated the, the allotment of land to the, uh, to the neophytes, to the Indians who had lived in the, in the missions. The predictable result of that well-meaning law was that uh, wealthy and well-connected Mexican ranchers essentially took, took the lion's share of the land, carved out enormous ranches. And now they needed uh, laborers to make these lands productive. And again, once again, as it had happened before, the only people they could turn to as laborers were Indians. And so uh, a system of uh, coercion of these natives 
developed throughout California in the 1830s and 1840s. Uh, they would conduct uh, raids to the uh, to various parts of California in order to bring back laborers, coerced laborers, into these ranches. And when Americans started coming into California, they uh, essentially looked at this system of the ranchers. They were astounded by this baronial society that they encountered in California. But they also became a part of the system. And they did, uh, I mean, there was a number of reactions to this. Some, uh, some American uh, settlers were more respectful of Indian rights than others, but there were plenty of Americans who became ruthless explo- exploiters um, of California Indians. And this whole mix became explo- explosive once um, gold was discovered in California. And then the uh, acute need for labor essentially skyrocketed and created a terrible uh, situation and some scholars call it a wholesale genocide uh, of natives in in California. Mm-hmm. So yes, it is uh, it is a it is a fact of our history in California. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's some pretty brutal and disgusting stuff that you you actually expose in that uh, section on, in your book. It's really I was just sitting there seething as I'm reading it. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and we only have maybe one more question after this, but one of the things I wanted to ask you about was the Navajos, because when you talk about an all-out assault against a group of people. When I was reading that in, in your book, what happened to the Navajo people, it was incredible, and it was, it was moving, and it was enraging at the same time. And let's talk about that, because the Navajos seem to become a sort of a zero point, you know, sort of the target, the, the bullseye, in terms of a whole campaign against the indigenous people. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I found quite interesting and quite instructive in researching this book and looking at the big picture is how different indigenous peoples uh, became the preferred targets, um, and that those targets changed over time. So at first it had been the Apache Indians, but by the, by the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, and 50s, and 60s, the Navajo uh, nation became the, the primary target of enslavement by Mexicans and Americans um, as well. And this all came to a climax during the uh, Civil War years, when the Civil War in New Mexico uh, essentially uh, was ended very quickly, and uh, what we have was a, a very large military buildup uh, in New Mexico that uh, that was waiting for the rest of the country to sort of come to a resolution. And in the meantime, the military authorities of New Mexico decided to do something with this military muscle, and they decided to, quote-unquote, deal with the Indian problem. And they decided that the Navajo was the, was the most uh, aggressive and uh, dangerous group that they had, and they decided that they would uh, remove it uh, to a reservation forcibly. That was the, the way to do it. In conducting this campaign, they, uh, the American troops, soldiers, availed themselves to both Native auxiliaries, especially youths who had been the long-standing enemies of the Navajos, as well as Hispanic uh, militias, who also uh, had a long-standing tradition of making taking Indians captive, and so uh, this entire campaign 
um, as you know, resulted in a heartbreaking wholesale enslavement of um, Navajos who found themselves in a difficult situation as as they are as as they are moving being moved in mass to the to the uh, to to a reservation uh, hundreds of miles away from their from their stronghold mm-hmm. in the Canyon de Che. So yeah, it's uh, terrible and uh, and. You know, even years after after that uh, that wholesale removal, the long march, as it is known, among the Navajos, there are all kinds of pieces of historical evidence, uh, documents referring to the to the Navajo captives. Uh, so there, so that's a very, very well documented, uh, easily documentable, uh, and really sad episode of New Mexico's history. Yeah, sad and enraging. Let me ask you this last question. In the book, you make the comment that the other slavery had no legal basis, so it was never really explicitly abolished, and it continued into the 20th century. Let's talk about that. This isn't, this isn't just a relic of the past. It's something that actually continued into the 20th century. That's right. Well, um, in, a, in the final part, part of the book, I um, try to very briefly uh, bring up the story that... Uh, that modern forms of enslavement actually are exactly um, what the other slavery were all about. So the modern forms of slavery are, um, are posed as legal work, yet they essentially uh, exploit people at little or no pay. Um, and uh, they are designed to uh, adapt to the legal environment of different parts of the world, so, so today, uh, slavery is forbidden all over the world, uh, even in the most recalcitrant uh, parts of the world, like Mauritania, where uh, slavery was, was legal up until relatively recently. All of that is uh, illegal now. Yet uh, the Walk Free Foundation estimates that around 45.8 million people around the world today um, are enslaved uh, or suffer some form of enslavement. And these forms of enslavement uh, resemble in some ways or are the direct uh, descendants of these forms of uh, slavery that, that, that Native Americans suffered for 300 years. Uh, that is, uh, these, uh, these covert forms of, uh, of exploitation that take advantage of legal loopholes uh, that pose as legal work. Um, so that's so. So that's the. So in that sense, uh, these other slavery is not just uh, a historical curiosity, but it is something that really we we need to bear in mind as we try to tackle these terrible um, and very enduring and very dynamic system of uh, bondage that lasts until today. Mm-hmm. All right, Andres Fresendez, thank you very much for your book and for joining us today. Thank you so much, Michael. It was a pleasure to be with you. Great. Thanks a lot, man. And we'll keep in touch, all right? So the next time you're writing something or have more questions about this, I'll get in touch with you, all right? Thank you so much. Of course. <laughs> all right. Take care, man. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. You're listening to The Michael Slate Show, and we have just been talking with Andres Resendez. He's the author of The Other Slavery, The Uncovered Story of Indian Enslavement in America. And it's a really, I'm telling you folks, it's an enraging and critically important book 
and it really gives you a sense of how this world came to be what it is today. All right, that brings me to the end of yet another show. So I want to thank Andres Resendez, of course, for an interview that should give everyone a lot to think about and for producing The Other Slavery. I also want to thank my assistant producer, Henry Carson, my production assistants, Jeff Pryor and Matt Kriklinski, and I'd like to thank each and every one of you for tuning in. If you want to write to me, you can at mslate at themichaelslateshow.com. Once again, that's mslate at themichaelslateshow.com. You can also find past shows and special interviews on my website, themichaelslateshow.com, and social media. Like my page on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, and that Twitter is at michaelslate195. We're going to go out now with Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Indian Blood from The Last International. Talk to you again next week. Follow me, love, until tomorrow. Change.